I drove by the Pentagon over the bridge on 14th Street, and I saw the Pentagon burning outside of my car window. And the second I got into Northern Virginia, every house had a flag out. And when I pulled into my driveway, our flag was hanging. And that that's the moment I lost it. I like sat in my car and cried. Welcome to the News Items Podcast. As our regular listeners know, we post episodes every Monday through Thursday afternoon. But on some Fridays, like today, we release one of our interviews in its entirety, unedited, warts and all, for you to hear. In this case, it's an interview between my co-host, John Ellis, and his longtime friend, Jill Abramson, former Washington bureau chief, managing editor, and executive editor of The New York Times. We have today as our guest, Jill Abramson, the former Washington bureau chief, managing editor, and executive editor of the New York Times, and the author of Merchants of Truth, which, after the powers that be, is probably the best book about modern media that you'll read. Thank you for joining us, Jill. Happy to be here, John. I remember you telling me about 9-11 a couple of years ago, and People don't really get a, have an idea of what a of what a uh, Washington bureau chief does. Um, so I thought we would start there and have you tell us what happened after the plane hit the towers uh, on 9/11. Well, when the first plane hit the first tower in New York, I was at the YMCA working out as I usually did with my best friend, Jane Mayer, who's a great reporter for The New Yorker. And when I saw that happen, you know, we, I think, had the Today Show on in the gym, and they were saying it was probably, you know, just a plane, plane accident crashing into the tower. And my internal thought was, okay, that's going to be a metro story. I, I don't have to... I don't have to do anything. So I continued um, pedaling on the elliptical machine. And then soon afterwards, the second tower was hit. And I then ran out of the Y in my gym clothes and ran the two blocks to the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. And you know, until about 3.30 a.m. the next day, I was in those same uh, pretty smelly gym clothes, uh, working more frantically and harder than any other day I've spent in journalism. And maybe a minute after I arrived in the Bureau, the Pentagon was hit. So that meant not only was this almost certainly an act of terrorism like the world had not seen before, but it also was um, a story impacting directly the government in, in Washington. Of course, there were soon rumors that yet another plane was likely heading to the White House. And yeah, the main thing I remember besides deploying every reporter 
who was at work that day. And there were about 60 journalists who worked for me in the Washington Bureau, including photojournalists, just sending everybody out to the Pentagon or soon, very soon, there were tanks in the streets because our bureau was near the White House. And uh, the odd thing is we we lived, my family, our, our house was right near the Pentagon. And I have to admit, not once uh, during the day or even during the night until, I don't know, maybe at about 1 a.m. I checked in with my husband, but it just, I went into, clicked into total professional mode. And my son had actually been thrown out of his bed. He was sleeping late by the impact of the plane at the Pentagon. But, you know, my family was completely far from my thoughts. And all I was thinking was, this is the biggest story that this bureau has ever covered and that I've had to manage. And the, at the new, we, at the times we do something called a noon list, which is a list of all of the stories to be expected from Washington uh, for the next day's paper. This was really the, the website was in its relative infancy in, in, 2001. And I think that there are 25 to 30 different story slugs on that list. By noon, we were sending 30 stories to New York about intelligence, law enforcement, everything we knew about who the attackers were, what had happened at the Pentagon. And that list, the printout of it, still hangs outside the current bureau chief, Elizabeth Bumiller's office. Uh, so that that list of 30-something stories uh, is framed outside the current bureau chief's office. And, yeah, the other very memorable thing is that all of those stories were up and edited you know, by midnight, many of them were up and edited by 9 p.m., which is when the print paper starts to roll off the presses in, in New York. And at about 1.30 a.m., I was starting to plan how am I going to get home. And then I learned that the entire phone system in New York crash. They could not get incoming calls. They could make outgoing calls. So um, the deputy metropolitan editor called me uh, just as I had at about 2 a.m. threaded my car. I drove by the Pentagon over the, the bridge on 14th Street and I saw the Pentagon burning uh, outside of my, my car window. And, you know, we, as I said, we live very near. And the second I got into Northern Virginia, every house had a flag out. And when I pulled onto my street, every house had a flag. And when I pulled into my driveway, our flag was hanging. And that that's the moment I lost it. I like sat in my car 
and cried. And at that point, the deputy metropolitan editor called me on my cell phone to tell me I had to go back to the office because they were going to route all of the calls coming into New York through the Washington Bureau because our phones were completely functional. So I had to uh, ride back and uh, arrange for someone to meet me there who could hook up hook up the phones in this way. So uh, it, it was it was high intensity, and I don't know. At about seven o'clock, I remember learning that the brother of one of the Times editors in New York was missing at the Pentagon where he worked and that this editor would be arriving in the bureau. And, you know, he, he came and stayed for days and, and his brother unfortunately was one of the people killed. And did you work straight through the next day? Um, no, I think I actually went home for a little while to at least get new clothes. And then I think I immediately went back to the office and by the second early morning, it was clear. And Hal Raines was then the executive editor. I remember talking to him as I had on 9-11 itself. And he had us focused and exactly rightly so on the intelligence failure. That's what he kept saying to me. This is a huge intelligence failure, and that's the story we're going at. Well, he could see that the CIA and the FBI, whatever intelligence they had about this plot, that they weren't um, sharing information and that something terrible had fallen through the cracks. And was the internet at that point, were you? posting stuff on the internet that was not going into the paper? I mean, did you have to feed the 24-7 beast? We were, but to to be honest, the internet was the last thing on Correct. my mind. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, even, I don't know, maybe 10 days out, I, I, I did fly up to New York and I remember that Howell, the executive editor, had said to me on the the day I arrived, he asked me whether I wanted to come watch him pick the pictures for the front page of the next day's newspaper. And all of our thoughts were about the front page of the paper and the play for how to, you know, seamlessly create a report that was at least half international and then two thirds New York city and one third Washington. And we started printing at about, I think two weeks or 10 days in a special section every day that was called the nation challenged. And the publisher just paid for the extra newsprint to print that section, and we printed it every day until after the new year in 2002, and he didn't accept one penny of advertising in it. So that was 
you know, to me, the height of the times being a really good citizen. You told me once about picking the front page of the, uh, or picking the picture for the front page uh, for the Obama first inaugural. Could you take us through that one? Because that, the Obama first inaugural. Oh, yeah. It's such a great story. We did anticipate that Obama would be the winner in a close election, although we had completely prepared if the opposite happened to uh, be the case. But, you know, it turned, we expected a, a close election and probably a very late night, but it turned out to not be that late a night. And at that point, I was managing editor of the Times working um, at the main headquarters in New York. And uh, for election night, you know, Bill Keller put together a really great front page. Uh, and all, all the headlines said in huge letters was Obama. You know, it had a picture of the family coming out in Lincoln Park. And so that had put in my head just, you know, that these front pages were iconic, election night. And then the inauguration day picture would be an iconic newspaper as well. And just as a aside, on election night, uh, I started to go home at about 2 a.m. and there were all, there was already a big crowd of people waiting outside the Times Building on uh, 40th and 8th Avenue. And you know, when I came out, I said, "What are you guys doing here?" And they said, "We want papers." And at that point, I only had like the first edition, which didn't even have the Lincoln Park picture in it yet. It had a picture of the Obamas from earlier in the day. And they said, we don't care. We want papers. And so I went up to my office and I had one stack of papers and I brought them down. I handed them out to these people. And the guard in the Times lobby said to me, don't do that. And I said, why? And he said, well, there, there, there are going to be more of them if you're <laughs> giving out papers. And at that point, I, I went home. And when I got to the paper the next morning, there was a line, of, a, a four block long line of people waiting to buy the print newspaper, the Obama headline showing that he'd won because... And we had to go back and print, I think, 300,000 more papers because the demand was so high. And so the demand for the inaugural paper was going to be high, too. And the, the uh, typical traditional photograph that is chosen for the inaugural paper is the chief justice administering the oath of office and the new president holding up his hand uh, and having the other one on the Bible. Uh, so it would be Justice Roberts and Obama. And it just, it didn't, it didn't do the day or the historic nature of this inauguration justice, I didn't think. And I thought the moment of the day that did capture that was when this young 
radiant couple, Barack and Michelle Obama, got out of their car and walked together on Pennsylvania Avenue. They were holding hands and looking so happy and radiant. She was in this like magnificent chartreuse coat with matching shoes. And, you know, it was just, to me, symbolic of what this change in government meant. And a lot of the old male editors at the Times argued with me and they said, readers are going to be angry that we're not giving them a paper with the traditional picture of the president uh, giving the oath. And I was in charge of the paper that day because Bill Keller had act, the executive editor had actually gone to the inauguration. So I just stuck to it and said, I don't care. And the, the picture editor actually agreed with me. So that helped. And so the day, the morning after the inauguration, there's another big line. And we actually sold the two papers together. We resold election night and, and then inauguration day as a, a package of two newspapers. It is, I think, one of the great, newspaper fronts of all time. It's just a spectacular picture. And now that you can turn it into a non-fungible token, the New York Times can make you know, five or seven million dollars. Right. They used it again. The Times published a, a book. Damon Winter won a, a Times photographer, won a Pulitzer Prize for his photographs of Obama during the campaign uh, in 2008. And they used the same photograph I picked on the cover <laughs> of that book. It's a, it's a fantastic picture. Let's jump ahead to uh, 2016, a very different election. Do we have to? <laughs> uh, uh, we don't have to. But at this point, you're... You're looking at an organization that is fully focused on the internet, I guess, and and equally focused on social media. And Hillary Clinton has been defeated by Donald Trump. And I, I was at her headquarters. I, I was writing, um, you know, a very long cover piece for The Guardian because I was gone from The Times by 2016. And so I was, I went to her headquarters, I thought, just to top this 7,000 word piece I had prepared in advance about the meaning of having the first woman president. And instead, you know, I sat at the Javits Center watching all of her aides crumple and cry. It was terrible. Uh, and, you know, I, I was in touch with, with, a lot of friends at the times that was going to be the first election night that I hadn't been there in, in a very long time. And I knew that they had prepared nothing in advance. Like if Trump should win because they didn't think it was possible. And of course on the, the, the homepage of their website, they had that odometer that was called the hell dial, which, you know, swung from 80% probability that Hillary is going to win, you know, after Florida and Ohio, it like flopped dramatically in the other direction, but they, you know, they had to turn on a dime. It was 
a, a pretty frantic scene over um, a little bit further east at the New York Times building. Yeah, so did Trump. I mean, I think at 8.30 he didn't have an acceptance speech written, right? I mean, they, they were as flunk, you know, stunned as everyone else. Yeah, well, you know, that, that's been another, I, I think, failing of, of the press. I mean, we, we haven't talked about it. would take up this whole podcast to talk about all the terrible mistakes the Times and the rest of the news media made in the lead up to the Iraq war. But, you know, missing the Trump wave and the building anger at the elite in 2016 is a close second in terms of just having very flawed coverage. And again, the Times wasn't alone, but... What do you think accounted for it? I think a lot of things accounted for it. I think, like, believe it or not, in some ways I blame the Internet. The Internet and the demand for new political stories, you know, every half hour made it really hard for, you know, the political reporters to actually go places and have the time to interview voters and stay in in the red parts of America, which were Trump countries. So most of them were reporting from the coast, you know, talking to their brethren on the coasts. And their reporting just did not pick up this this huge wave of anger among non-college educated uh, men and white men and women. They just missed it. And, you know, it, it's because they weren't out knocking on doors and going to state fairs and, you know, really talking to people. And, you know, the distrust of the media was certainly building during the Trump campaign because he was encouraging his supporters to attack the press that did attend his rallies. And so I'm not sure, you know, that that Trump supporters would have been that eager to talk to reporters from The New York Times right. either. So this style of political reporting that you and I were trained in, which was make, you know, the umpteenth last call, go to the states, interview county chairman, all of that, like, doesn't happen anymore. It just, it just doesn't. You know, Dan Baltz at the Washington Post may be the last of the Mohicans who actually does that kind of political right. reporting. How much do you think of that is just the Twitter feeds and... Facebook, Facebook less. It's really the journalistic community seems entirely addicted to Twitter. And I, I wonder, you know, when I look at the feeds, it's like, yeah, what else do you do but, you know, stay on Twitter? I first noticed that in 2012, I went out to Iowa it was even even when I was executive editor, I liked to go out and be among the voters and myself see the candidates campaign. And, you know, I was big and there are long drives to get anywhere. And I noticed like the whole time we're in the back seat, John Harwood, who was then 
doing political reportage for the Times, like right. has, you know, this running thing on his uh, laptop screen. And I'm like, what's that? And he's like, oh, it's my tweet deck. Uh, and at, at that point, you know, I knew what Twitter was. I, I don't think I had a Twitter account at that point. Um, and I should disclose now, I hate social media. I think it's uh, a sewer and, I'm not on any form of social media, and I have turned off all of my news alerts as well. And I'm perfectly well-informed and much happier to have my attention uh, not interrupted by constant bombardment of social media things and uh, news alerts, but you know, in 2012, I noticed like the whole political press was glued to, to Twitter, and they had to be because it's where the candidates were posting their schedules and their right. statements already. So, so in 2016, Trump's elected. Um, he comes into office, and that begins a surge of subscriptions at, among others, the New York Times. Are papers like the New York Times uh, and the Washington Post, I mean, there's the obvious question, which is, did did becoming part of some kind of resistance to Trump become not editorial policy, but editorial bias? Well, it, it became more than editorial bias. It became a business model. Right. Because, you know, during Trump's presidency, you know, the Times became almost an entirely reader revenue driven business advertising both digital and print has decreased uh, dramatically and the the times relies on uh, digital ad revenue and print ad revenue to stay alive and support its giant and growing newsroom and, you know, the Times readership is liberal and affluent and highly educated. And they love, you know, every, every headline that had Trump in it was like, you know, mana from heaven to the Times readership. Those stories got by far the, the biggest readership. And uh, the Trump bump you know, what was driven by, you know, obsession with Trump and a kind of what I, I think of as Trump poisoning that, that everybody had that made it impossible to look away from all of the crazy and very hurtful things he, he was doing. And it resulted in millions of new digital subscribers to the times they 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 never had more subscribers than they did in the last quarter of 2020 i mean it just kept rising and look why i say it's a biz, business model it's similar to facebook's uh, algorithm which gives people more of what they say they like. Right. And so that's what the Times' news report was doing. It was giving readers more of what they liked and were reading. And that was 
Trump, 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 Trump. I remember we were having coffee in Cambridge. I'd come up to speak at your class. And that particular day, there were six anti-Trump stories on the front page of the New York Times, or could be construed as anti-Trump stories on the front of the New York Times. It was amazing. And you, you went through them one by one. Yeah, and the Post, the Washington Post was just as bad. And because on their their apps, they kind of combine, they group stories together. So you can you hit the news articles and the opinion pieces in one big Swoop. glob. And I mean, Trump, you could like scroll screen after screen of your phone was Trump stories. So, so it wasn't just the Times. I mean, Trump, you know, every Trump story brought the ka of a cash register with it. So what happens now without Trump? I don't know. We're, I guess, beginning to see. Uh, you know, I think, you know, where I've seen a, a dramatic difference is on MSNBC and CNN, which, you know, were turbo-Trump platforms, anti-Trump platforms, then they never had higher ratings than they did. Uh, And, you know, they they don't have, you know, especially with Trump banned from Twitter, you know, he isn't going out that much. Uh, You know, it's dried up and you know, they've tried to fill in, you know, with President Biden and and policy. But controversy, as you know, is what drives viewership, uh, controversy and argument. And without that, I I don't think the ratings are going to stay that high. And I think that the, the I may be wrong here. I think the Times is going to hold on to most of its expanded readership, but obviously not all of it. I think so too, actually. Um, I, th- I think the uh, the great thing for the Times was that Trump uh, attracted basically every anti-Trump person in the country, of which you know there were apparently at least 84 million. Right. Railing against the failing New York Times resulted in, you know, a fatter and happy New York Times. (laughs) So in in the business of the New York Times, and you were, when you were executive editor, that was an issue, obviously, you had to deal with more or less every day. It was all I dealt with. (laughs) It was all I dealt with as executive editor. You know, they need alternate revenue uh, streams. They've just hired uh, a game maker. Yeah. And, you know, that seems to me a very good idea. When you were executive editor there and when, you know, obviously you still know a lot of people there, do, are there ideas as to where other revenue can be generated? Is there, Yeah. The games thing, obviously, is great. I, I thought cooking was definitely a a revenue generator. And for years, uh, I was kind of pushed to the side and told that the New York Times recipes were not digitized. You know, all of those, I'm not kidding you. And every, every year I would put that on the top of my priority list and it never 
got to the top until finally, as my last year there, we were developing the cooking app, which has made, you know, millions of dollars for the Times. Right, right. So, you know, the, there were areas that, you know, could be grown out of news coverage that we did and wanted to do anyway, uh, that, you know, I was all for. I was not for um, adjacent products that were not really beneficial to the mission of news gathering. I, I hated high dollar sponsored and paid conferences. I hated the idea of times trips and I'm not going to say I told you so, <laughs> uh, given the recent controversy over a certain trip to Peru. <laughs> um, but, you know, Keller and I, when he was executive editor, and I was managing editor, put the kibosh on a Times Wine Club because it wasn't going to bear any connection to Times Wine criticism. And in fact, would in some ways ethically pollute things. So, I mean, I've, right. I've been brought up in journalism believing in a very high and non-porous wall between business and the news. And, you know, my belief system became very outmoded in the digital era. I will admit that, but it's what, I basically still believe in. When did you first start reading the New York Times? I first started reading the New York Times in fourth grade because we had a current events class in my school where you had to bring in an article that you thought was interesting. And my mother wouldn't let me cut up National Geographic, which I actually thought was the most interesting. So... She didn't mind if I cut up the times, especially because my parents actually had two seven-day-a-week home delivery subscriptions to the times. We lived uh, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and, you know, my parents never voted for Republican during their lifetimes, and they were involved in progressive democratic west side politics and you know my early life was a satire of uh, new york times highly educated pretty affluent upbringing we're right at noon so we'll let you go but uh, I hope you'll come back. And thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Sure. It was lots of fun. Rebecca Darst here again. Thanks so much for listening. Tune in again on Monday for our next episode where John and I will talk all about geopolitics, finance, science, and tech. <laughs>